HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Roberta's, robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to HRN Happy Hour. It's 5 o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is Bushwick. Okay, really, it's 510. We never start anything on time here, <laughs> but you get the picture. Uh, my name's Kat Johnson, and I'm here with my co-host, Katie Mosen-Wadler. Hi, guys. She is the executive director of HRN. If you didn't know, now you know. <laughs> um, Patrick is not here today. We miss him, and hopefully we'll see him next week. Um, our, our perennial co-host, Patrick. We have special guests today. We have Paul LeBeau here from Wolfgang Mock, and they make um, home milling equipment. So welcome, Paul. Thanks. <laughs> and then we have Rob Elliott and Nate Littlewood from Urban Leaf, and they, they are trying to bring um, home gardening to all of us. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Yes, Thanks. All right. So, oh, and we also are going to have a very interesting call with Beth Shapiro. She's the executive director of City Meals. And we're going to talk a little bit about um, snap budget cuts and some important stuff to all of us. So first, we're going to kick off the show with rapid fire headlines from the past week. And then Katie and I are going to recap our trip this weekend to Charlotte, North Carolina. We uh, talked to a lot of awesome chefs while we were down there. And we also attended the International Symposium on Bread, which is where we met Paul. Excellent. Uh, well, should we kick it off with the HRN headlines? Let's do it. All right. Let's do this thing. So uh, what's better than breakfast, guys? On Eat Your Words, host Kathy Irway talked to Rachel Kong from Lucky Peach Mag about the most important meal of the day and its star ingredient, eggs. Rachel and the editors of Lucky Peach have laid it all out in their new All About Eggs cookbook, which is a veritable egg cyclopedia of recipes and preparations for this incredible edible food item. And we all know that you can't have eggs without bacon. So to celebrate the 300th episode of Cutting the Curd, 
host Diane changed things up a bit and talked about meat with fellow HR and host Katie Kiefer. Katie's new book, What's the Matter with Meat, is filled with valuable information about the meat industry and its impact on the environment. And check out Katie's show this week on What Doesn't Kill You. She talked to Andrew F. Smith, who is the author of the new three-volume book, Food in America. He talked about um, the set, which is focusing on food controversies related to the environment, nutrition and health, and the economy. I think that covers like a, a quarter of the food controversies, maybe? Yeah. A lot of those. It's not um, what we think typically think of as American food, but Snacky Tunes bugged out this week when they were joined by Josh Evans. He is the former member, a former member of the Nordic Food Lab, which is the group behind the compelling and eye-opening new book on eating insects, which is our engineer David's favorite thing to do. Yum. Uh, Bugs also got a mention on Ferment about it. Jay Goodwin, who's the co-founder and director of Blending and Brewing at the Rare Barrel and also the co-host of the Sour Hour podcast, called in to talk about barrel-aged sour beers, bugs, off flavors, and hot sauce. So if you're like into any of those things, uh, tune in to Ferment about it this week. On taste, A Taste of the Past, um, Linda focused on the sweet nectar of flowers. Roses are indigenous to Iran, and distilling the essential oils of the flower to make rose water has been practiced there for over 2,500 years. She talked to cookbook author Yasmin Khan about the significance of the seasonal speci- specialty. And it was tea time on Radio Cherry Bomb this week. Carrie sat down with Linda Apolipsius. She's the co-founder of Tea Tulia, which is a progressive tea company based around a community-forward organic tea garden in Bangladesh. Uh, They talked about sustainability, taking care of their employees and the communities, and how to brew the perfect cup of tea. And speaking of tea, Akiko Katsuyama talked about tea on Japan Eats as well. She spoke to Tomoko Honda of Ipoto Tea in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, Now I'm getting really thirsty and I have this glass of rosé left over from Food Talk, thanks Mike, uh, (laughs) that I'm hoping to get to. Um, So we uh, are going to take a little look at In the Drink, uh, where Joe Campanelli was joined in the studio by sommelier Michael Skernick. Uh, Michael, in 1987, founded Skernick Wines to represent a few boutique wines from California, and uh, his business has just exploded, so he's super well-known now. Check out that episode to learn more than you can handle about wine. Um, Joe was talking about having to have him back for part two of that episode. Wow. So speaking of booze experts, Damon and Souther talked to marketing specialist and certified sommelier, Adrian Stillman. She is the author of Where Bartenders Drink, which is a comprehensive guide of 700 plus bar recommendations from 300 expert bartenders in 60 countries. And in case you're in the mood for some historically inspired distilling, listen to Feast Your Ears to learn about Jim Costanzo from the Aaron Burr Society. They started distilling whiskey in 2010 with the second whiskey rebellion as a radical act of civil disobedience. Um, Do you want me to hit these next? We have a lot of beverage themed ones in a row. We do. Um, So also check out. I know. Uh, For more wine, listen to the Grape Nation for another sommelier and wine executive, Michael Madrigal. uh, Really, really well-known guy talking about what to drink all summer long. Whites, reds, rosés, sparkling. Um, And then... Oh, I have another wine one, but it's... It's National Wine Day, too, by the way. Oh, that's why we're having all these wine shows. Yeah. Okay. Kat, take it away with uh, Dana's show. Oh, Dana. So she chatted with Jordan Gasper on Speaking Broadly. She's the managing partner of... Is that a Cell Foods? 
Am I Excel, saying that? Excel Foods, Excel like Accelerator. Foods. Yep. Yeah. Um, it invests in innovative and disruptive food and beverage companies, and she describes how she chooses between the thousands of products to find the winners and about the challenges of traveling. Uh, balancing travel, work, and young kids, which sounds really challenging. Um, as challenging as trying sounds to terrible. say this sentence. Um, and then um, Army vet turned entrepreneur Kim Jung explains the mission behind uh, Rumi Spice, a company which works with women farmers in Afghanistan bringing peace through saffron. And um, keeping up the girl power, Erin on the Farm Report this week talked to Gabrielle Ludwig. She's the Director of Sustainability and Environmental Affairs for the Almond Board of California. Um, and then on Feast Meets West, Linda and Ira, Iris, sorry, I should get that right. That's actually my middle name also. <laughs> so you should really think I'm able to pronounce it. They're talking to executive chef Paul Donnelly of Chinese Tuxedo and also their co-owner, Eddie Buckingham. And they talked about the challenges that they faced when they were opening their opera house turned Chinese restaurant in Doyle Street in Chinatown in New York City. And talking about the history of Chinese food in Australia, where Eddie was raised and how it differs to the American Chinese cuisine so might be of interest to some of our guests today yeah and finally on food without border sari talked to self-taught indian chef um gaurav anad anad talks about how he learned to cook by observing india's master chefs um, including leading restaurateur jigs cholera his clientele list for his catering company and restaurant that includes business leaders politicians and celebrities and that wraps up all of our HR and headlines. That was intense. That was Cheers, a lot. That was, Cheers. How did we do all that? I don't know. Cheers. Thank you to Hannah and Hallie Thanks for writing for, up all those headlines. I'm, ex- yeah. I'm exhausted. Lot, I know. Cheers. It's been a big week here at Heritage. A lot happens. Um, and somehow a lot of that happened in our absence. Uh, things just kind of ran themselves because we've been gone since Friday. They didn't run themselves. I ran them. Uh-huh. That's Thanks, David. true. Yep. David held down the fort. David ran the entire show since we were not here. Thank you. Yes. Bravo. Bravo. Oh, wow. What a great audience. I know. (laughs) Our audience is the best. We have the best show. Um, So we were um, in Charlotte, as Kat mentioned. We did a round of interviews with chefs. And I would like to say I've never eaten so much food in my life, but that would be a lie. (laughs) But I ate a lot of food. We had um, about like six pretty significant kind of chef's tasting menus in like two and a half days. Um, we were on a trip that um, was celebrating Springer Mountain Farms chicken. They do all um, humanely raised antibiotic free uh, chickens, mostly like in the distribution is mostly in the Southeast. Um, they're really cool about supporting chefs. And so we really got to go down and meet a bunch of the chefs that are working with them and get a little bit of a sense of what Charlotte has to offer. Um, although I think the highlight for Kat might not have been one of the meals, but one of the drinking sessions. It was great. We went to the punch room in Charlotte. And if you are ever in Charlotte, you must go there. It's on the 15th floor of the Ritz-Carlton, downtown Charlotte. And Bob Peters, who is the bar, ma- bar program manager there, um, he has like a very fancy title that I'm not remembering right now. But he just makes the most incredible like Willy Wonka-esque drinks. And it was just great. Yeah, you should definitely listen to our interview with him on the HRN on tour show. Uh, we talk a lot about his kind of strategy behind building a drink. And also he's obsessed with finding the perfect glassware. Mm. So he has these uh, really unusual 
vessels that the drinks are served in. And we also got to go up to the roof of the Ritz-Carlton where he's built uh, a kind of rooftop garden up there with two beehives and kiwi plants and tons of herbs that the chefs and the bartenders are using. It was really wild. Um, (laughs) So that was cool. And then uh, we actually went to one restaurant twice because we liked it so much. We went to Yafo Kitchen twice, which is um, kind of a fast, casual Mediterranean um, restaurant that uh, we ate way too much food at. Mm -hmm. And then for basically all day Monday and Tuesday, we ate lots of bread and learned everything there is to know about bread. Um, The whole event was put on by Peter Reinhardt and Johnson & Wales University, and it attracted uh, an international crowd. They sold out. I think there were 200 spaces available, and they sold out a couple months ago. And um, I love And there's bread. Oprah. We can't do a show without Oprah these days. <laughs> um, you thanks, just see David, David like, cracking up. He's been up waiting for his that. moment. Um, I don't know how that happened. I didn't do I that. I know. You must have just hit the button. Um, <laughs> have she you played that appeared. in every show or just ours? <laughs> well, Bread. 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 Um, so right. we will be posting all of the recordings from the bread conference to the HRN on tour page as well. So if you want to tune in, uh, take a listen there, I really recommend it. Um, in particular, we were super excited to hear from Francisco Migoya from modernist bread because we are going to be producing a podcast with them. It's going to be a really beautifully edited special that's going to come out in the fall to coincide with the release of the six volumes of Modernist Bread. They were very, very pleased to announce that the uh, final version of Modernist Bread is actually, I think it was 20 pages longer than Modernist Cuisine. Wow. So they really have a lot to say on bread, and the photography that we saw is just incredible. So stay tuned um, for that. Um, and with that, I think um, I'd like to get into um, saying hello to our first guest, who's going to be Beth Shapiro, the executive director of City Meals. Beth, are you on the line? I am. Hello. Hello. Thank Hi, you Beth. so much for joining us today. Thanks I want to give a very quick introduction um, to City Meals. It's a nonprofit organization that delivers meals to ed- elderly New Yorkers to ensure that they never go a day without a nutritious meal and a warm visit. They use a network of compassionate volunteers. Um, so, Beth, did I capture the essence of what you're doing, or would you like to add anything about City Meals? Um, I'll add just a tidbit uh, in recognizing the people that we serve are homebound elderly New Yorkers, so people 60 and older who really can't get out and shop or cook for themselves anymore, but the people who help build the city for us. Wow. Um, and we heard about you um, through the op-ed that we saw today. We wanted to talk to you in particular about how President Trump's proposed budget cuts are going to affect city meals and New Yorkers in general. The proposed budget cuts actually um, get rid of an entire safety net of social services for New Yorkers. For the people that we serve, uh, homebound elderly, um, funding for Meals on Wheels programs in New York City and all across the country rely on the Older Americans Act nutrition program. It's very simple, 67 cents for every meal delivered across the country gets um, reimbursed by the federal government. The decrease of $3 million from the current level can have devastating effects for us and others, and you're looking at a program that is proven beneficial to keep 
older people in their homes where they want to be, in the comfort and familiar setting of their communities, um, for a cost that's pretty insignificant. And is there an association between uh, the Meals on Wheels, the program, and City Meals? Can you explain that? Sure. So in New York City, Meals on Wheels is um, funded by the city government Monday through Friday, the preparation and delivery of meals Monday through Friday. City Meals was founded 35 years ago by restaurant critic Gail Green and chef James Beard, specifically to fill the gap, the recognition that these older people, like you and I, really want to eat every day, not just five days a week when the government's open. Mm-hmm. So we fund weekend, holiday, and emergency meals to the same people who need meals during the week. Our portion of that is now over to about 2.2 million meals annually to the same 18,000 New Yorkers. Wow. Yes. The large group. We're feeding over 200 people that are 100 years old or older. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. And Beth, what can, um, what can all of us do to help support your organization? Multiple things, and it's not hard. Most important, go online, citymeals.org, make a donation, sign up to volunteer. You mentioned our volunteers in your first statement. Last year, we relied on over 15,000 volunteers who helped with 72,000 hours of time. So for us, it's a, it's, um, it enables us to do all that we do. And the other step is to get on the phone and write letters and call your representatives. They cannot let this budget pass. What are some resources that you can recommend um, for kind of a general audience to understand the proposed budget cuts and the SNAP program in general? So SNAP is different funding through the Older Americans Act, but the SNAP budget cut of 25%, about $193 billion to be cut over the next 10 years, um, impacts households with children, elderly adults, and older people with disabilities. Nearly 5 million of adults over the age of 60 rely on SNAP. I think the best resources are, you know, to look online. We have Resource Center on our website, but it's very specific to elderly. Mm-hmm. Mm. But you, I mean, at this point, you can Google and get information about SNAP and other hunger-related resources that are very, um, you know, easy to follow. They're not difficult to understand and to look at, you know, in New York, one in 10 city seniors are facing hunger each year. Uh, we're a city of home to 1.4 million people over the age of 60. That is increasing in the city and across the country. In the city, older people are the fastest growing population and will outnumber children for the first time in history by the year 2030. And it's imperative that we take steps and that everyday New Yorkers take the steps to understand what will impact them. And quite frankly, in the long run, all of our tax dollars, it's much cheaper to keep people in their homes with meals delivered than it is to be hospitalized for a nursing home. A year of meals home delivered is a day in the hospital. Wow. 
Well, thank you, Beth. That really puts it in perspective, and I really encourage all of our listeners to check out City Meals, try to donate, try to volunteer, and make sure you're doing everything you can to understand what's going on with the proposed budget and to take action in your district and state. Beth, thank you so much for being on our show today, and I hope to hear more from you soon. And Katie, thank you for having me. Thanks, Beth. So we are going to take a very quick break to have a word from our sponsors. And when we get back, I'm really excited to jump in and talk about mock mills and about the world's tiniest garden. We'll be back in a moment. Super duper awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. Thanks, Brandon. I love that Brandon is a very, very, very big sponsor of Heritage Radio Network. And I totally agree that Roberta's is super, super, super awesome. It's this is true. Brandon Hoy. <laughs> it's true. Hey, Brandon. Hey, Brandon. This is Brandon Hoy. What's up, Brandon? This is Brandon right. Hoy. Okay, okay. Thank right. you, Brandon. So Thank you. I'm. Jeez, he just will not stop. <laughs> I'm very, very excited um, to talk to Paul, Nate, and Rob right now because what's cool, I think what's cool about both Mock Mill and Urban Leaf is that it's like trying to enable the home cook. So let's jump right into it. Should we start with Paul? And Paul, tell us a little bit about what what is the Mock Mill? Oh, gee. The Mock, the, mock Mill's great. We have a great name for it. Everybody says Mock Mill, but what's that? Well, Wolfgang Mock is my partner and is incredibly well-known, even around the world, in the, in the food-conscious um, environment as the as the millman, the man who made stone mills, and in fact, he really did in the uh, in in the late seventies, early eighties, figure out how to make an efficient, beautiful mill that works really well for making your own flour out of any kind of grains, pulses, or 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 even spices. Um, and his mills are still the uh, the most uh, the most widely respected. So mock mill is the latest stone mills created by Wolfgang Mock, very simply. And they're pretty small. The, the, the recent one that has come out basically attaches to a KitchenAid. 
Yeah, actually, this is the one that's been out for a while. It's oh, okay. actually a KitchenAid, and it is. Uh, hang on, let me grab it. <laughs> I love, I love actually to hold it because it's really uh, uh, a beautiful little piece of equipment. I have this thing called my Forrest Gump Act, where I get to take it apart and show people how it works, and it just in just a couple of seconds and wow. a couple of actions, it just comes apart like like a Tom Hanks rifle in the movie. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, you're looking at this really this really beautiful um, little stone mill. Um, that's taking the the grain in from the top from the hopper that you stick in there, and mm-hmm. it has to it has to make its way through down onto a chute that falls into the into the bowl of the KitchenAid, and it, it gets crushed into really beautiful flour in so doing. Wow! And so it's a really beautiful little piece of uh, it's a little beautiful piece of kit, as Australian friends might say. <laughs> and, and, <Let's> go. <clears throat> And uh, um, it, it's caught the imagination and the admiration of really the whole um, the whole bread baking world. The top mm-hmm. the top chefs all they have them all at home uh, and bake with, mm-hmm. <laughs> make flour to bake for their families with it. What and go ahead, Katie. This was one of the questions that came up during the bread symposium of. Um, Somebody asked exactly when they should be milling the flour to bake the bread, and uh, I believe Wolfgang answered that question, but do you remember what his answer was? Well, his answer is right away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and basically the, the reason is because um, a kernel of cereal is, is, is like a treasure chest, a nutritional treasure chest. It's just got so much wonderful stuff and is beautifully balanced. And the moment you break it open, the moment you open that treasure chest, it's uh, all that value is, is headed downhill slowly, but it's headed downhill. And so the best thing to do is to use it right when you open it up. Awesome. And you can only do that yourself at home. Nobody can do it for you. Mm-hmm. It's really rethinking the way that we uh, go about baking bread, uh, dramatically changing what the first step of that process is. But I think uh, it's going to be one of these try it for yourself and see mm-hmm. the, uh, the amazing difference kind of stories. Yeah. Now I want to turn to Nate and Rob from Urban Leaf. Guys, can you just tell us what Urban Leaf is? Sure. We're a business, <coughs> excuse me, uh, we're a business that um, aims to make growing food at home fun, easy, and accessible. Um, basically, we just want to show people that this is not something that's intimidating. Uh, there's a lot of benefits to it, and you know we should do a whole lot more of it, basically. And you just opened your Kickstarter on Monday, is that right? That's correct, yeah. Uh, so tell us, now. tell us about the Kickstarter itself, um, yeah. and then what, uh, what the actual process of growing a plant in the Urban Leaf is. Absolutely. So the product that we have on Kickstarter at the moment is called the World's Smallest Garden. Uh, it's a little device that turns a bottle into a self-watering hydroponic garden. So it's about five inches long, just slips down into the neck of the bottle, and it comes with all the seeds and the nutrients and the hydroponic substrate and everything that you need to get, um, you know, just culinary herbs and small vegetables to, sorry, herbs, and, uh, <laughs> herbs. and small vegetables to grow. <laughs> Um, so it's it's uh, really designed and intended as a gateway product, some you know something to welcome people into this field for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, selling for, for you know twelve bucks for a three pack at the moment, so it's mm. pretty affordable as well. And, and technically, is that considered a hydroponic garden? Yes, uh, I'll jump in. So <laughs> this is Rob. I'm the uh, plant scientist. I guess an engineer behind it. So yeah, it, it is a a hydroponic garden technically i guess for the f- if we want to get into the nitty-gritty of it 
for the first part of its life, it's a wicking soil-based garden because the five-inch long substrate will draw water up and keep it at a good uh, moisture-air ratio. But then once the plant is larger, the roots will reach directly down into the water. And this method's called the Kratky hydroponic method, where the roots kind of chase the water as the level goes down. And what that does is it allows the top part to be available to air because roots, just like us, take sugar, break them down by cell respiration, so they need oxygen as well as water to grow. Very cool. What types of plants can people grow with urban leaf right now? Um, So the good news is we haven't found many plants that don't grow in it. Um, Basil was like the big one we wanted to get all of our beta testers using. So we've had about 300 people now grow a basil plant. Um, Mint works really well. I have some tomatoes, snap peas, uh, bok choy did incredibly, oddly enough. So it's a pretty flexible system, I would say. Uh, But obviously... You can't, most of like the big plants we're doing are dwarf varieties just because you're in the neck of a bottle. Yeah. <laughs> Do you sorry. have to prop the bottle up for a plant like a tomato? Uh, so we're, we're using, they're called Tiny Tom tomatoes, oh. and it gets about eight inches high. So, no, you don't need to prop it up. It, it stays vertical on its own. That's cool. awesome. Yeah. I'm sorry we didn't bring a sample with us, but did you guys see the photos? Oh, yeah, yeah. we watched your video. Right? And we're okay. going to, we'll All put right. some of these on our episode page too so mm-hmm. people can see it. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can you describe it though for our listeners? What, what does it look like? It looks like a little garden oasis. It's just beautiful. <laughs> it's just luscious and green. The poet. <laughs> it looks like uh, someone who really likes wine, um, drank all the wine, and then was like, I'm going to grow a garden in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, once you do something, you start to see it everywhere. It's, so for me, now I just see, like, people that put flowers and plant stems in a wine bottle. So... <laughs> If you didn't know what was going on, you might just think that it was a cup plant in a, in a bottle. The device kind of disappears. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think it's really interesting between Mock Mill and the world's tiniest garden that, or sorry, the world's smallest garden, right? Correct me. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure I'm telling everybody the right thing to Google. Um, but both of you, um, so you, you guys um, from Urban Leaf are in the very early stages where you're still assembling prototypes in your own home. Um, but that was also the case for the early mock mills, was it not? Can you tell us about you know, when did the first kind of mock mill production begin and what that looked like? Oh, gosh. Um, that was back in the, in the 70s, in the late 70s. Wolfgang was, um, had been studying psychology and had just actually started baking bread and had discovered the, the wonder of freshly milled flour. And he had an old hand-crank mill, and he got tired of that. And uh, and he wanted an electric mill, bought an electric mill, and said, this thing's kind of not what I want. It blows flour around. I don't like that. I could do better. And started uh, working on building his own mill. And um, he finally got a design he liked. He built the mill, and his friend said, oh, I'd like one of those. And, and, uh, and so he built another one, and then more people wanted them. And all of a sudden, he looked at these cities, you know, gosh, this is a lot of work. Our whole apartment's full of mill parts, you know. And um, and he just decided uh, that he was more uh, motivated to go out and try to spread the word on fresh milling with, with really cool mills um, than to keep um, uh, working specifically on autistic kids. 
and 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 off he went. So yeah, he uh, they they built mills in their apartment for for quite some time. It sounds like the the precursor to Kickstarter, um, <laughs> but following a really similar model actually of uh, that startup. Um, do you have any advice to offer to Urban Leaf for um, growing a startup? Like a food what would you call that? Yeah, food, it, yeah, a food device. Would we call it? Yeah. Well, w- what I'd say in general, and I've, and I've actually been a startup guy all, all my life, and I I was like the first man in Europe um, for a company that wasn't sure to make it at that time, and today it's worth thirteen billion dollars on the stock exchange. So I've, I've seen I've been part of some really incredible startups, and I would just say if you believe in it, and if it's if it's unique and if um, you're not going up against some you know, overly uh, uh, formidable uh, competition, then just go for it and stake your claim on the territory and make sure that everybody knows it's yours and then, uh, and then go. Because it's, um, we're talking, we're both, both companies are talking about bringing people closer to their food. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fantastic thing, and I think that's what the newer generations want. They want to be close to life, yeah. and that's what this is. Yeah, I, I think the life thing specifically is uh, is really interesting because something that like blew my mind when I learned it recently was that you know a seed is alive. It's performing cell respiration. It's eating a little bit of its food. Its metazo- metabolism is very slow, but it's a living thing. So it's, I mean, that speaks to me a lot with, like, grinding it. it. Like, obviously, once you smash it, it's dead, and once it's dead, it decays. So, mm. so eating it as the, fresh yeah. as possible. And I think on the other end, uh, you know, not the seed end, but, like, on the leaf end, the same thing is true, that once you pick a plant, it starts to be like become autotrophic and eat itself and degrade its uh, vitamins pretty quickly. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think, like, getting people... To, to be that close to life is, is sort of at the heart of both of them. So I'm not sure if you've looked into this before with respect to, to flour, but one of the statistics that we came across, which was pretty mind-blowing uh, for fresh produce, was that if it's stored in a refrigerated environment for only one week, it can lose between 15 and 77% of its vitamin C content. Wow. And, you know, here in New York, a lot of our fresh produce, especially in the winter, is trucked up from California. It's been in the back of the truck for five or six days. It sits in the supermarket shelf for, you know, another week. Maybe it's in your fridge for another week. So there's a huge amount of uh, nutritional value loss through all that transport and storage. Well, I think fortunately for fresh fresh food, grains, as amazing as they are, don't have vitamin C, you know. So the... The the, the the sailors in the old days all got scurvy because they were being fed on hard tack, you know, um, and vitamin C solved that. But, but in fact, um, just I'm glad you bring it up because one of the great things is, is, is in grain, in the germ of the grain, in that life that you were talking about that's being preserved within the grain is, is a ton of vitamin E, which is really important for us. And even from some of the, the you know, when you buy whole, wheel, whole, whole wheat flour at at the market, a lot of that has been taken out. It's ha- because because if it's left in, then you don't have any shelf life on the flour. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, in fact, if you want to get the full package of vitamins, then then you have to take the whole grain. Mm-hmm. And the wonderful thing about home milling is it 
it, it gives you whole grain flour, really, truly whole grain flour, which you can't buy in a store. This might be a crazy question, but would it ever be possible to grow your own grains at home and then mill them with the mock mill? Yes. That's if, so cool. If, if we're talking possible. It's um, possible, yeah. You need a pretty big, uh, pretty big home, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, you know, well. it's, it is funny that you mentioned that, though, because uh, I, I just recently read about a guy who said, I just wanted to try this out, and, and he just actually grew the grain in a barrel, uh-huh. in, a, in, a, in a plastic barrel on his patio and, and talked about it. And um, it seems to me like a lot of work, but it is interesting. And if you, the thing about it is that there's this incredible variety of grains. I went down to the green market at Union Square yesterday because I was going to be baking pancakes for somebody and I was going to replace uh, pastry flour with whole, with whole wheat flour. And everybody goes, ah, oh, whole wheat pastries that doesn't taste any good but they i went down there they had 14 different wheats on offer there at, in one shop and so i could choose this soft white wheat that made beautiful pastry flour and it made fantastic waffles um and people don't realize that that you have all this 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 choice out there and so if you want to grow your own wheat grow your own wheat and 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 check into the varieties there's a, a research center in 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 washington they got I'm not sure, 40,000 different kinds of wheats going. It's crazy. Wow. Well, I'm very fascinated. I think this conversation could go on for so long. I, You guys all need to come back and talk more about this because I think it's just well, everything you're doing is awesome. Mm-hmm. And I need Urban Leaf and a mock mill in my apartment, like ASAP. <laughs> I have uh, just a quick question about what's next for both of you. Um, very short term for you, Paul. Tell us very briefly about your day tomorrow. Oh, so tomorrow is a hugely big day. Um, tomorrow I'm, I'm invited for the second time in this year um, to visit what's recently been um, uh, voted the 11th best restaurant in the world on the list of 50 best restaurants. I'm the, uh, together with Wolfgang Mock, I'm the, the, um, the guest of, of Chef Dan Barber at, um, at Blue Hill at, at uh, Stone Barns, and he's... In, he's He's incredibly enthusiastic about fresh milling and about getting grains into the hands of the consumer. It, it really plays to his his whole philosophy of changing the way we eat, and so that's a huge day. And I'm looking forward to it enormously. We get a we get a tour um, by uh, Rene Marion of the Stone Barns facility, which everybody should visit if they have the chance. And, and then we'll have that fantastic uh, meeting with Dan Barber, who just. Uh, hey, you know, I'm 60. He rocks my socks. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> it's going to be a hard one to follow. I know. <laughs> so um, for you guys, I want to know, first of all, um, how can people best find your Kickstarter and contribute and sign up to receive the world's smallest garden? And then uh, can you give us any teasers on other products that might be coming down the pipe? Absolutely. So you can just jump online, uh, Google World's Smallest Garden. Uh, we should be one of the top results that come up. Uh, if not, then jump onto Kickstarter and search for the same. You'll definitely find us there. 
Uh, in terms of what's next for us, we have a bunch of interesting products and ideas that we have in our development pipeline. We've sort of put a lot of them on hold for the last little while just while we focus on getting this thing up and running. Um, but ultimately, yeah, we want to be developing the tools and systems and support that people need to grow their own food at home and really sort of deconsolidate uh, the food system and make it much more local and much more personal. Hell yeah. <laughs> and website is GetUrbanLeaf.com? Yep, that's it. Got it. And Mock Mill. No, WolfgangMock.com. There you go. Nailed it. That's uh, Mock, M-O-C-K. Cool. All right, so we're going to wrap up the show. We always wrap up our show with trivia. So. Uh-oh. <laughs> usually we warn people. I don't know if we did this time. I apologize. We like but to keep you on yeah. your toes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so we're going to do it rapid fire. Okay. Question one. What is the oldest grain grown by man? Einkorn. Correct. Nicely done, Paul. <laughs> How? Without hesitation. <laughs> like, <laughs> just easy. like that. That's from 10,000 years ago. <laughs> from the beginnings hard. of farming <laughs> in Mesopotamia. So uh, Paul's got that on Paul's rapid like, recall. Paul's like, that all you got? <laughs> okay, next question. How many minutes does it take to make kosher matzah? 18. Yes. <laughs> wow. You're killing it. <laughs> and it, it's been done starting from grain with a mock mill by Polly Goldman in, in Salinas, California this year. Hey, Polly. All right. Wow. That's, that's awesome. Wow. Okay. You're like probably the best at trivia we've ever had. I okay. This is, I, I swear, <laughs> I don't think he can see my script. <laughs> He's not now. cheating. Do you have x-ray vision, Paul? <laughs> All right. Next question. In what year was sliced bread introduced to the market? 1928. No. No. 21? No. No. 1912. However, you were suspiciously close to the second part of the oh. answer. Because You're right. Otto Frederick Rochweder? Rochweder? Rochweder. Rochweder. This one. W's or V? What does it say, Paul? Rochweder. Rochweder. Yeah, that's what he said. Uh, he nice. introduced sliced bread in 1912, but the bakeries thought that it would go stale because we didn't have all these kind of special additives in the day. Um, so it didn't really catch on until 1928 when he invented a machine that would both slice <laughs> and wrap the bread. So once again, Paul, um, Come on, give your me ability to, yeah, you you to answer it. these trivia questions is a little bit frightening, but also very impressive and awesome. Have you guys got any questions about basil plants? We're getting Yeah, this is a combination of like grains and gardening questions. Right. Okay, so the next question is in the Middle Ages, bread was not just a staple of the diet, but was actually used as a tool. What purpose did a br- piece of bread called a trencher serve? You can also make an answer up. What purpose did a trencher serve? What was a trencher used for? We're going with bread bowl over here. Yeah, <laughs> I, I accept that. It was, it was stale bread about roughly six inches by four inches and was used as an absorbent plate. So that's totally a Excellent. bread bowl. Excellent. Congratulations. I would normally nice call absorbent a fault of a plate, but it sounds like that was um, <laughs> no, kind of you need it. No. And then after the meal, they would oh. give the bread to the doggies or to the poor. I guess they would decide on their priorities. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now we're going to get more into the gardening stuff. So what famous 17th century philosopher and scientist wrote the first book exploring the idea of growing plants without soil, a.k.a. hydroponics. 
This is all you, Rob. It's a fine question. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's uh, so a 17th century philosopher. Can you tell us where he lived? Um, ooh, I should I, know that, but I, I think don't. He's British, but I'll do yeah, check. Yeah, I think so too. So he he wrote it. Uh, well, it was published the year after his death, which was 1627. His last name is also a food. Mm-hmm. A very very delicious Tasty. food, a non-kosher food. <laughs> <laughs> Made out of pig. John Mm. (laughs) Hamm. Died in 1926. Of Francis Bacon. Yes! Yes. Very good. There you go. All right. But 1926, no. 1626. 1626. All right, last question. So our guest today may have created the world's smallest garden, but where in the U.S. can you find the world's smallest park? This is the real challenging one. <laughs> I'll give you a hint. It's 452 square inches. <laughs> 452 square inches. And also, wow. the, the name of the park is interesting, too, um, because it ties into our theme. The name oh, of, I see what you did there. The name of the park is Mill Ends Park. Do you know what city that might be in? Let's go with New York. No. I know that we have small things in New York, like (laughs) apartments and restaurant tables, but we have big parks here. It is in the... uh the same in the city where uh, Bob's Red Mill is located. So it's got to be in mm-hmm. Portland, Oregon. There you go. There you go. There you go. Where's the ding, ding, ding? Thank there you. It is. All right. Jeez. So that's it for our show this week. I want to thank I want to thank Beth Shapiro for calling in and telling us about City Meals. Um, Paul LeBeau for joining us from Wolfgang Mach. And Nate Littlewood and Rob Elliott from Urban Leaf. Make sure you check all of that out. I mean, just, I'm very inspired after the show. Also, big thanks to our producers, Hallie Crane and Hannah Forden, and our fabulous engineer, David Tattashore. Stalwart Biggest engineer. stalwart engineer. He's a bastion of the community. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you, David. Stalwart. Thank you, stalwart. You're a thank stalwart you, Linda bastion. for that <laughs> accolade. Yeah. All right, so... Um, my, I'm Kat Johnson. This is Katie Mosen Wadler. And stay tuned for my interview with Eli Sussman, um, who is the chef of Samisa. Um, he is opening, um, so Jacob Reese Bazaar is back open this uh, weekend, Memorial Day weekend, at uh, the beach. So we're going to be talking about what to expect. Um, check out Samisa and Ed and Bev's at Jacob Reese Bazaar. And then make sure you go to the beach soon because. Hopefully it stops raining soon and we can all enjoy some good weather. Yeah, surf on over, dude. Surf on over, dude. All right, that's our show. We'll Stay see you next week. Thanks very much. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks, thanks, guys. guys. Bye-bye. Hi, Eli. Welcome to HR and Happy Hour. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's start off and tell me a little bit about how you got started making and serving food at Rockaway Beach. Sure. So we were approached by the guys that run Brooklyn Night Bazaar, which is now up in Greenpoint. And 
that we have a camp connection to one of the founders of it. He is a Habonim guy, which my brother and I were involved in that youth group growing up. And so we got connected through that Jewish geography type of thing. And he reached out to us because we were doing pop-ups with Samisa. And he said, would you be interested in doing a beach location? So the Brooklyn Night Bazaar guys run the concession operations at Jacob Reese. So Jacob Reese is in the Rockaways and it's by Fort Tilden and we did it last year and we're doing it again this year. And it's going to be bigger and better, right? Oh yeah. It's, uh, we're going, we're doubling down. So last year we did a, there's a, a main bay for those of you that have never been there. It is uh, sort of like an indoor, half indoor, half outdoor food court. There are these great roll gates that roll up. So we were in there last year and then further down the beach, we had a standalone kiosk as well and this year we're adding in a shipping container that's going to be a samisa and a hot dog cart that's going to be in ed and bev's which is our other concept down at the beach we can't get away from shipping containers no they're so cool you know it's just you can do so much with them you can sit inside of them and do radio or sell hot dogs out of them exactly so Can you explain a little bit about the food of each concept? Sure. So they're two separate concepts, and they each have their own uh, kiosks that you can visit, basically two of each, and then a hot dog cart. So Samisa is sort of like our restaurant in Williamsburg. It's Mediterranean. So we make our own dips, and down at the beach, we're going to be doing them with... um, uh, vegetable chips instead of um, our pitas. Um, and then we're going to be offering sort of open-faced pita sandwiches, basically. So we're going to be doing a lamb, a chicken, and a vegetarian one. And then we're going to be doing something that we like to call machos, which are going to be Mediterranean nachos, essentially. So using those vegetable chips, which come in, you know, a little bag like you get at a bodega, we're going to put your choice of protein and then uh, white sauce and green sauce over the top. So, you know, a spicy meat, crunchy bag thing. It's sort of like Frito pie. If you've ever, that's the, yeah. ins- that's the inspiration for it. Frito cool. pie. So it'll be like a handheld kind of trashy beach snack. And then Ed and Bev's is uh, diner food. So it's confusing. We call it Ed and Bev's Coney Island. Cause in Detroit, Diners are called Coney Islands, and the people in the Rockaways were super confused last year. So we just call it Ed and Bev's, and essentially it's burgers, fries, uh, cheese fries, chicken tenders, and then Coney Dogs, which are a hot dog with chili, mustard, and raw white onions on top. And when do you open, and what days of the week will you be there? Yeah, so uh, we're going to open on Memorial Day weekend, and we're open until Labor Day. So there are some vendors that are open seven days a week, and some are only weekend vendors. Um, So Ed and Bev's will be open uh, every single day. And the main bay uh, is open every single day. And it opens at noon and it usually closes about eight o'clock, nine o'clock. Depends on the weather some days and uh, whether there's like a special movie event or a band. But basically you can come down and get food seven days a week at Jacob Reese and the bars is open seven days a week. And then the sort of 
other satellite locations of our spots, as we'll call them, those are going to be weekend only. But if you come down during the week, you'll be able to get um, burgers and some of the other great vendors like Ample Hills will be down there with ice cream, Fletcher's Barbecue, our neighbor's Bolivian Llama Party, which does some really great stuff. So uh, full liquor and lots of food options seven days a week. And then on the weekends, there's always music and uh, sometimes vintage shopping as well as um, lots of ice cream options up and down the beach and and then outdoor bars as well. So like on the weekends, it definitely expands and gets really robust and crazy up and down the boardwalk. But it's still nice to come there on a Tuesday and chill out. There's picnic tables and hammocks and uh, and usually either like karaoke or a live band down there. That's awesome. That's where I was hanging out all last summer. Yeah, it's a really amazing time. And you can be down if you want to like be totally by yourself. You can go down by Tilden and it's it's basically deserted. It's deserted. Yeah. And like no one is going to bother you by Tilden and you can bring your own stuff if you want and be all the way down there. And then if you feel like grabbing some food, you can walk the five minutes down to Jacob Reese along the boardwalk and snag whatever drinks or food you want and then go back to kind of being like off the grid and at Tilden. That's what I love about it. It's kind of like a choose your own adventure. You can be right there in the middle of the action at the bazaar or you can you can literally walk almost to all the way down the beach to the point and be on this deserted beach. It's yeah, really cool. It's um there's no other beach that I've ever visited that's simultaneously so packed with people and the ability to find your own area is also is totally an option. So like you can be in the mix or you can go a couple hundred yards down the beach and no one is anywhere near you because the beach is so much more massive than other beaches that like for people that have never been down there before from the boardwalk to the water is several hundred yards. It's so very like, wide. It's so wide and so deep. And so it, even when it's full, it never really quote unquote fills up. Mm-hmm. There's never, there's never not space to run around and play catch and, right. you know, families bring families go down there at eight in the morning and they set up these little kind of makeshift uh, tent cities for themselves. Yeah. And then they hang out for 12 hours during the day and no one ever messes with each other. It's great. Yeah. Did you go to that beach before last year much? You know, I had been down to Tilden many times, but I'd always, I have a car, so I drove parked at Tilden and then you kind of do this hop fence sneaky mm-hmm. routine type of deal. And Jacob Reese, uh, I didn't even know that it was there with food options until we, came down there on a very, very cold April day last year and looked at the food kiosk operations for the first time. I'd only been to either Tilden or then I'd gone to Ripper's a bunch as well, Mm -hmm. but I'd never seen that big mile long beach area in the middle that, um, I, now I, I love it the most. I think it's, I don't honestly know why anyone would want to go, um, down further in the Rockaways because they're, you know, it ends up being really, really crowded. And for me, I like a, a booze cocktail. And so they have these frozen cocktails at Jacob Reese, uh, that go down real easy on a 90 degree day. (laughs) And, uh, and there's a parking lot right there and then a bus stops right there. Mm -hmm. So, and then the ferry's coming this year as well to 108. So to me, it's sort of like the best of both worlds. You got a big beach, and then a lot of options to choose from. Yeah, I would say the way 
that I did it last year was take the bus. It drops you off at Jacob Reese. You get drinks, get food, and then you go and you walk down the beach and you, you know, get away from the crowds. It's like really the perfect day spent in Brooklyn in the summer. I agree. I couldn't agree more. And I mean, it's, it's not even a bad bike ride. Tons Mm -hmm. of people bike down. A lot of people take the train and then bike some of the way. And then now you've got the cool ability to take the ferry from, you can take it from Greenpoint, from Williamsburg, from Sunset Park or Red Hook. I'm not right. 100% sure where it is over there. And so a lot of great ways to get down there to kind of experience the mm-hmm. city. I know a lot of people that love to bike down there and kind of see a part of South Brooklyn that you don't normally exactly. spend time in. And I definitely am going to take the ferry once or twice and just see what that kind of view is. I mean, you get to hug the the shoreline. Mm-hmm. I, I assume the views are awesome they have of to Manhattan. Be. They have to be incredible. So... Yeah, a lot of cool ways to get down there. That's the plan. I think that, like, from where we are, the ferry adds maybe 10 minutes, but you get to be on a ferry and not a bus. Yeah, it's how much more enjoyable could it be? It's like, instead of saying, oh, it's such a bummer, we have to take the train down, it takes X amount of time, it's part of the day. Mm-hmm. It's like, let's do something cool and take the ferry that we wouldn't do ordinarily and make it part of sort of the adventure of getting down there. And there are other. Like shuttles and private things, too, that you can take to get down to the beach. Yeah, there's also a bar. uh, Pearls runs Mm -hmm. a bus, so you can go drink at Pearls and then take a bus down to that beach. And, um, you know, taking the train down to the bus is still pretty easy if that's the way you want to get down there. Mm -hmm. And then you're, you're rewarded with, you know, 20 food options and, you know, a lot of awesome activities up and down the boardwalk. Maybe Samesa needs to have a shuttle between locations. Oh God, that would be incredible. We could take people from our 10 seat restaurant yeah. to our 100,000 capacity beach <laughs> in our Samesa. Just 10 at a time. Yeah, exactly. Just I'll throw them in the back of my uh, junker Prius and there you go. have them like hold some uh, cucumber lemonade work. on their lap, you know? Yeah, yeah exactly. Have- like you get to eat for free if you help me load up my car with all the pita and stuff. That sounds like a deal. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's actually like, it's, I should probably look into that, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks, Eli. I cannot wait for the summer. I can't wait for Memorial Day so we can go eat lots of good food and get tan. See you down there. Cool. Yeah, come on down. All right. Surf on over, dude. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 